Thank you, Teresa. Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read uh, just one verse, that's verse 20. We are continuing our series on frequently taken out of context Bible verses. Uh, we did Jeremiah 29 11 two weeks ago, uh, Romans 7 verse 1, or Matthew 7 verse 1 uh, last week. Uh, Next week we're going to be in Romans, and then the week after that we're going to be in Philippians. And so that's kind of where we're headed, but tonight we're in Matthew, Matthew 18, verse 20. Jesus simply says these words, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now you probably know this as uh, a verse that's often quoted about prayer. Uh, specifically about prayer meetings, that, that when we gather for prayer, when we have a prayer meeting, that, that Jesus is there with us. Now, most of you know I, I did not grow up in the church. I, I didn't go to church until I was about 12 years old. And, and I think the first eight or ten years of my Christian life, that's how I viewed this verse, that this was a verse that was talking about prayer meetings, And it wasn't until I heard a sermon by John MacArthur that I came to realize that that's really not the primary point of this verse, that this verse is not specifically, primarily talking about prayer meetings. Instead, this is a passage that talks about how we are to relate to one another within the body of Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the the New Testament, you you know that the New Testament contains a a number of what we call one another's. Okay, there's all these these commands about one another. There is encourage one another, uh, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, pray for one another, serve one another, and and many, many more. And, And the New Testament indicates that that the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, is to be interested and engaged and active in one another's lives. That that is what we are called to do. This passage is another one of those passages that gives us helpful instruction as to what life within the church is to look like. And, And we should appreciate this. We should be thankful that God gives us instruction about how we are to conduct ourselves in the church, in the body of Christ. Now, in order to understand what what Jesus is getting at in verse 20, we have to to first understand what he's talking about in this entire passage, which runs from verse 12 through verse 20. And so we're going to look at this whole passage tonight, all nine verses, and we want to look at two things. First of all, there is the parable, and then there is the practice. Jesus tells a parable... And then he tells us what is to be our practice. Now, as is true with most of Jesus' parables, this is a pretty easy one to follow. And, and when we're younger, especially children, teenagers, or new Christians, we, we appreciate the parables because they're easy to understand. Children, you'll notice that the parable Jesus tells starts with a shepherd. So you have a shepherd, and this shepherd has 100 sheep. Now, you've heard me tell you before, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but, but sheep aren't really very smart. 
they can't fend for themselves. They can't care for themselves. They, they have a horrible sense of direction. And, and so they get easily lost. You might say that sounds like my husband, but they get easily lost. They can't find their way. And, and so this, this shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of the sheep wanders off. And all of a sudden the, the shepherd looks around and, and he says to himself, uh-oh, I've only got 99 sheep. What happened to the hundredth sheep? Now a good shepherd doesn't go, well, you know what, I got 99%. That's doing pretty good. That's an A plus, essentially. I got 99% of my sheep. That, that other sheep, he's just going to have to go fend for himself. He'll maybe find his way back. Now a good shepherd goes out and he searches for that one lost sheep. And, and when he finds that lost sheep, he rejoices. He celebrates. He's so happy. He's so, he's so joyful that he found the lost sheep. Maybe you've experienced that before when you lose something. You lose your wallet. You lose your keys. You, you lose some important document. And, and you finally find it. And you, and you celebrate. And, and that's kind of like what this shepherd is doing. He loses one of his sheep. He goes and he looks for it. And he finds it. Now why does Jesus tell us this parable? Why is this in this part of Matthew? Well, he tells us this parable for two reasons. First of all, to show us what he is like. You, you cannot read this parable, you cannot read this passage without being marvelously reminded of who the Lord is. Children, you know that throughout the Bible, God is pictured as the shepherd of his people. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack anything. Psalm 100, know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us, we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus is telling us this parable, first of all, to remind us of, of who God is. It's to show us the the heart of God, the commitment of God to his people. Specifically, I want you to think about three things in relation to God. This parable, first of all, teaches you that you're not just a number to God. You may go through life at some point in your life thinking that no one notices you. No one pays attention. No one cares but, but here we are being taught that God cares about each one of his sheep personally and individually. And, and Christian, that includes you. you. You may say, well, I'm just a, I'm a normal Christian. I don't have, you know, a hundred Bible verses memorized. I, I don't know the finer points of theology. I haven't memorized the, the entire Heidelberg Catechism. God loves each one of his people. Wherever they're at in terms of their spiritual development, he loves each one of them personally. Isaiah 49, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You're not just a number to God. He loves you. He knows you intimately. He 
He knows what you're going through right now. He cares about you. Secondly, this parable teaches that that God's not going to let you go. He's going to pursue you. Martin Luther once called God the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven who always pursues his people. In in John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. This parable of the sheep or the shepherd pursuing the lost sheep is a reminder to us that we are secure. You, you may wander off for a time. You, you may stray for a season. But your Savior will always come after you. He will never let you go. And, and third, this parable teaches us and reminds us that God rejoices over his people. Do you see that here in the parable? That the, the shepherd rejoices when he finds the lost sheep. Jesus says in in Luke 15, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You ever ever wonder before or imagine before what the joy of heaven must be like? What is it like when one of God's chosen people come to faith in Christ? Heaven rejoices. Your Savior rejoices. Your shepherd rejoices. There's a a wonderful passage in the book of Zephaniah. It's Zephaniah uh, chapter 3, verse 17. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save you. He will, listen, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. That tells us something about the love of God for his people. And so Jesus tells this parable, first of all, in order to teach us something about himself. And and then secondly, Jesus tells us this parable to to show us how we are to treat one another. How how we are to deal with one another. As those who who belong to God, we are to emulate him. We are to, to pattern our lives after him. We are to be concern for one another's spiritual well-being. We are to be those who pursue straying sheep. The temptation for, for most of us will be to say, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved. Maybe we know someone who is straying from the Lord. Maybe we know someone who, who doesn't attend worship anymore. And, and we go, that's, that's the elder's job. I, I'm not getting involved. But I don't think that's the teaching of the New Testament. After all of the one another passages in the New Testament, do we think that we bear no responsibility to those who are straying? 
Galatians 1, or chapter 6, verse 1, is not written to just elders. It's written to all of God's people. And it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. James 5, verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now it's easier not to get involved. It's harder and sometimes messier and sometimes extremely difficult to, to pursue a straying sheep. But that's what Jesus has done for us. He has pursued us. And it's what we are called to do for one another. And, and so that's the parable. The, the shepherd pursues a lost sheep. It's a reminder of God's love for us, his commitment to us, and it's also a reminder of the kind of heart that we should have for one another here in this church. That, that's how much we should care about each other, that, that if one of us goes astray, if one of us is struggling, we, we go after that straying sheep. Well, at this point, Jesus is going to get into the specifics of, of pursuing a straying sheep, and that's the the practice that we want to look at. How should we respond when a fellow believer strays? How should we respond when someone maybe abandons the faith? How should we respond when, when a fellow believer sins against us? What's the right course for us to pursue? Notice five things about what Jesus says in this passage. First of all, this is a helpful reminder. This whole passage is a helpful reminder that our fellow believers will sin. They will sin. Our brothers and our sisters in Christ will offend us. They will hurt us. They will let us down. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be outraged. That doesn't condone their behavior, but we shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't say, how could a Christian do such a thing? We shouldn't be shocked when Christians live in a way that is contrary to God's word. That, that old adage, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, is somewhat trite, but it's true. Believers will sin. We will disappoint each other. We will hurt each other. Don't be surprised at that. Secondly, though, Jesus tells us that when someone sins against us, we are to go to them. We are to go. In other words, don't, don't let their offense fester in your heart until one day you just blow up. Don't hold a grudge for 10 years. Go to them. Third, Jesus also tells us to go to them in private. We, we don't announce their sins to others. We don't spread it around to others. We, we don't grab somebody in the middle of the fellowship hall and confront them. We, we should speak to the person who has hurt us or offended us in private. Notice the words Jesus uses here, between you and him alone. Fourth, Jesus tells us that we should do this so that we will gain our brother or sister. 
This again gets to this whole point of we should care about each other. We should care about each other's spiritual well-being. We we want to see the person confess their sin. We we want to know the person. We want to see the person know the fullness of of God's forgiving grace. We we want to see our, our relationship with that person restored and strengthened. We, we don't call out their sin to show them that we're better than they are. We, we, don't, we don't do this so that we will, you know, have something to hold over their heads for the rest of their lives. We do this with a spirit of brotherly love. We, we, we do this with an understanding that, that we, too, are sinners saved by grace. Nothing is, is more offensive, perhaps, to an outsider than to walk into a church where everybody thinks that they are better than everybody else. We are to adopt the posture of we're sinners saved by grace. And we pursue people not because we are better than they are, not because we are holy, more holy than they are, but we do it because we, we care about their well-being. We do it for the purity of the church. We do it for the glory of God. Now, this is why what Jesus says in Matthew 7, we looked at this last week, is so important, where he says, you know, why do you, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and not notice the log that's in your own eye? Deal with the log. Deal with the two-by-four. And, and then deal with your brother's speck. And then fifth, we... We go to them, we go to that person when we see sin in their life. In other words, we, we don't go to somebody because they have an annoying habit. We, we don't go to somebody because they, they dress weird. We, we don't go to somebody because they, they have broken some man-made rule or law. We, we go to the person whose life has deviated from the law of God we, we show them from Scripture where their behavior doesn't line up with God's revealed will, and we do it in love. And, and Jesus says, you know, if, if they listen to you, you've gained your brother. If, if you go to them and, and they say, you know what, you're right. I'm sorry. Thank you for, for bringing that to me. Thank you for bringing that to my attention so that I can confess this to the Lord, that I can find forgiveness through Christ, and so that our relationship can be restored. If, if that's what happens, that's the end of it. That's the end of the matter. You, you don't run to someone else and say, hey, you want to know something? I had, to, I had to confront so-and-so about sin in their life. No, it's over, Jesus says. But, but what if you do all these things, you go to them in love, you go to them according to the word of God, and you, you show them how their behavior or their belief don't line up with scripture, and they won't listen to you. You've gone to them privately, you've given them uh, the, the understanding that their behavior is contrary to God's word, you, you've gone to them with the word of God, you've gone to them with the understanding you need grace as much as they do, but they refuse to acknowledge their sin. They refuse to confess their sin. They refuse to turn from their sin. What then? Notice verse 16. Jesus says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You, you take two or three others with you so that they can confirm the facts. Now, now, it's important to understand this. 
you don't, you don't stack the deck. You, you don't find two friends or three friends that you know are going to agree with you. You know they're on your side, and, and they're going to help you gang up on this other person. You, you bring two or three people with you so that they can hear both sides and so that the truth can be established. And, and when they hear both sides, they, they, they might go, yeah, that's right. This is a sin that, that needs to be confessed. But they also might go, you know what? We, we think you've made a, a really big deal out of something that's not that important. This needs to stop. And, and maybe the thought of bringing two or three others into this makes you say to yourself, is this really that serious of a matter that I want to get other people involved? But let's say it is. Let, let's say it is a serious matter. And you go to them. You've gone to your brother in private or your sister in private. They don't listen to you. You take two or three people with you. They've agreed with you. And now this person still won't acknowledge their sin. Verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now this doesn't mean that the next Sunday morning that you and the two, and three, two or three witnesses stand up in church and come up to the front of church and tell everybody what happened. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. What, what Jesus is saying is, is he's saying get the leadership of the church involved. Get the elders involved. And, and let's say that the elders agree with you. They, they agree that this is a matter that this person needs to apologize and, and seek God's forgiveness. But let's say the person still won't listen. Now what? Middle of verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now you read that and you go, wow, really? Should we really be treating people like tax collectors? That doesn't mean that you treat them poorly. It doesn't mean that you, you now hate that person. It, it simply means that you treat them as an unbeliever. You treat them as someone who needs Christ. You, you put them out of the church and, and you treat them as someone who needs to be converted by the gospel. You don't give up on them. But, but you continue to reach out to them with the good news that there is forgiveness in Christ. Now, now look, none of this is easy to do. None of this is, is enjoyable to do. Uh, matters like, like this weigh very heavy on, on elders who have to deal with, with uh, discipline situations like this. And there are times when, when the elders might go, is, is this really worth it? They might say, I, I feel so inadequate for this work. But that's what the Lord calls us to do. And, and that's why the rest of this passage is now so important. These verses, 18, 19, and 20, are verses that have confused people all throughout the years. But they're very helpful. They're very encouraging when we properly understand them. Notice verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven... And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you look at that verse carefully, it, it makes it seem as if heaven is waiting for us to act. That, that heaven is, in a sense, reacting to what we do. Well, unfortunately, the, the English Standard Version does not give the most accurate translation of the original language. If, if you happen to have a New American Standard Bible, it's actually much better here. The New American Standard says, 
Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound, future perfect tense, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You say, that didn't really help. Well, here's what Jesus is getting at. When the elders discipline the unrepentant, or when the elders remove discipline from those who do repent, they are simply echoing what heaven has already said. Heaven is not waiting on us to act. When we make a pronouncement that someone is, is, is still in their sin and not repentant, and deserving of church discipline, we are simply echoing what heaven has already said. And when we say to someone, when you repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, we are again echoing what heaven has already said. And now notice how the passage ends in verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you, or if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, verse 20 is the favorite verse of prayer meetings. But the context is actually church discipline. Verse verse 20 is not about prayer meetings. I mean, do do we really think that you have to have two people show up at a prayer meeting for God to be present? He's always with us. It doesn't matter if it's one of us or 50 of us. He's always with us. What what Jesus is actually saying here in verse 20 is that he will be present with his church even in the most difficult of circumstances, such as church discipline. He will give us the strength we need to carry out what he calls us to do, even confronting other people in love. And and so this this verse, this passage, should encourage us tonight. As we are called to, to care about each other, as we are called to minister to one another, as we are called sometimes to do difficult things, the Lord Jesus is saying to us, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll give you the strength you need to to carry out that that, that difficult task. We're we're not an isolated, disconnected group of people who just happen to be in the same building on Sundays. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We are to care about each other. We are to love one another. We are to encourage one another. We are to be involved in each other's lives. Not, as I said a couple weeks ago, in some weird, creepy way. But we are to care about each other. We are to get to know each other. We we are part of the same body. And as we minister to each other here, as we continue to carry out the work the Lord has given to us, Jesus is with us. He's not going to forsake us. He's not going to leave us to our own strength. 
So think about that. As you, as you teach a Sunday school class, as you serve in the nursery, as you serve refreshments, as you greet people, as, as you work in the sound booth, or, or whatever it is the Lord has you doing here, remember Jesus is with you. And he will give you the strength you need. I, I love what one man, Frank Thielman, says about this passage. He says, the kingdom of heaven is a place where sinners are mercifully restored and where people are quick to forgive and to seek reconciliation knowing that God in his grace has forgiven them. Isn't that what we should once said about our church? Zion is a place where sinners are mercifully restored Zion is a place where people are quick to forgive. Zion is a place where where people are quick to seek reconciliation because the members at Zion know that God in his grace has forgiven them. This is a hospital. This is a hospital for sinners where forgiveness is found. And this is a place where we forgive others because of how much the Lord has forgiven us. And so this is not primarily about prayer meetings. This is about the Lord Jesus being with us to strengthen us even even in the tasks that stretch us, even in the callings that aren't easy. The Lord is with us. Let's pray.